Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, be turning in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7. And while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's ministry. You can meet the children's leaders and volunteers there at the uh, uh, back room. So you can make your way there now. It's such a joy for us to have you with us this morning. Uh, Again, we're going to be in Hebrews 7. Uh, As we continue through the book of Hebrews, it was uh, such a joy to have Martin here for us last week as we took a break. From Hebrews, I look forward to continuing to partner with Hoyt Baptist there in Scotland and to continue to uh, pray for Martin in the months and, uh, Lord willing, years to come. But this morning, we're going to be finishing up Hebrews chapter 7. So we'll be in verses 23 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. So let me read our passage for us, and then I'll take a moment to pray for us this morning. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. Father, we are reminded, even from these few verses, that we are called to draw near to you through Christ. And so, Father, we want to do that even right now as we pray and come before you. We, We plead the blood of Christ. We come fully depending on his righteous life that stands in our place. We come fully depending on his all-sufficient death that stands in our place. We come depending on the power of his resurrection that gives us hope for our eventual resurrection, for our lives lived together in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity, filled with joy in the presence of Christ forevermore. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work in us this morning as we gaze at and meditate on the glories of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us in our place. And so, Father, I pray that the truth of your word this morning would would strengthen those who may be in a moment of of struggle, a moment of weakness in their faith. I pray that these truths would would put a rock-solid foundation under their feet. Father, I pray that it would be an encouragement to all of us to turn our eyes to Christ all day, every day, 
And so, Father, we plead for your help this morning, and we come before you in confidence because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. And so, Father, I pray even now that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> it's been uh, many years since I was in uh, undergrad at the University of South Carolina. Uh, by the way, we beat Kentucky yesterday, if you all didn't know that. I just want to mention that. It's been, but it's been many years since, uh, since I was there. But it's interesting to me that there's this one comment that stands out to me from one of my history classes. We ran one of our small discussion groups. It was a grader leading the class there at South Carolina. And he made this passing comment that really wasn't directly related, at least from what I can remember, to the material we were discussing that day. But for whatever reason, it came up, this passing comment, and it has stuck with me now for many, for numerous decades, and here it is. This greater, for whatever reason, decided to tell us about his father's retirement, and this is what he said. He said, my father spent his career in advertising. But when he retired, when he was finished, he said, looking back on his career, he felt like he spent his life doing nothing more than trying to convince people to buy things they didn't need. And that just stuck with me, right? There's, there's an emptiness that that can leave in a man. And I've reflected on that many times over the past years. And listen, that's why I'm thankful that by God's grace, that will never be true of this church or this pulpit. We're not here to sell you something you don't need. That's not why we gather each week. Instead, we want to spend our lives trying to convince people from the Word of God that Christ is able to provide all they could ever need, all they could ever want, and more. That's what we want to convince people of. That's why we gather every week. I would even say that is the purpose of the Bible. That is the purpose of the book of Hebrews, to point us to the glories of Jesus Christ, right? Books are written for all kinds of different reasons. Books do all different kinds of things and different people. But the reason the Bible was written was not to relay simply historical facts to you. It was not simply to fill your mind with theological knowledge, though I hope it does that. No, the Bible was given to us to woo us and to draw us to Jesus Christ, to show us the glories of his name to such a degree that we can never imagine casting our gaze anywhere else, right? That's, that's why the Bible was written, to convince us that our desire is ultimately found in Christ and in Christ alone. That's, that's why the author of Hebrews wrote this letter. You see, these early Christians, these, these early Hebrew Christians were struggling. They were tempted to go back to what they had before, right? To go back to their way of life before, to go back to their religion, the, the Jewish religion, to go back to the practice of daily sacrifices, to return to what they were familiar with. 
And the author of Hebrews is not beating them over the head, right? Trying to force them out of that. No, what he is doing is painting a captivating pictures of the glory of Christ and saying, why would you ever want to go back to that? Christ is more superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the priesthood. He's everything you could ever want or need. You don't need to go back to that. And listen, that is exactly what, it's try, what the Lord wants to do in our lives through the book of Hebrews as well. Right? He wants us, even this morning, to see the, the glories and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in such a way that we could never imagine turning to anyone or anything else. And listen, that's why in this church, Lord willing, we're never going to shy away from theology, right? Theology, the study of God. It's, it's not just for the halls of seminary. It's for every follower of Christ, because the more we know about God, the more we learn of Jesus Christ, the more we know about who he is and what he has accomplished, the greater our faith will be in him, right? The more our hearts will be drawn to him, the more we will be captivated by the glories of his name. And let's be honest, the more we know of Christ the less we grow to care about ourselves. And that's why John the Baptist said about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. You see, therefore, a passage like this is written to build our confidence and our assurance in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this passage is written to remind us that Christ is truly all that we need for our eternal joy and salvation. And there are two clear reasons this passage gives us for the confidence it is calling us to have in Christ. It breaks up evenly, verses 23 to 25, and then 26 to 28. And so the first reason, the first argument that the author of Hebrews is making to us is that, number one, Jesus is our final high priest. He's the final one. There will never be another. And then, secondly, he's going to say to us, Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the final high priest, and he is the final sacrifice. So let's look at this first reason we are to have confidence in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final high priest. Look there with me again at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So once again, the author of Hebrews is reaching back into the Old Testament. He's comparing the glories of Christ to the lesser realities of the Old Testament Levitical law. And he is saying, here was the situation for the former priesthood, for the Aaronic, for the Levitical priesthood. He says, look, there had to be a lot of priests because priests die, right? Humans tend to have that problem. Priests die. And so there were many in number. In fact, think about it, right? There was an entire tribe of Israel, right? One twelfth of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, was set aside for work in the temple and the priesthood. 
They were many in number, right? There was a lot of them. And the reason there was a lot of them, because God needed to be sure that there was always someone, always another group who would be ready to be next in line, ready to go to serve as priests, because it was inevitable that death would, would prevent them from being able to continue in office, right? You needed a second string and a third string and a fourth string ready to step up and to take it on, right? It, I mean, I mentioned football earlier, but... Let's think about football for a minute, right? Division I football, at minimum, has 85 players on a football team. Some schools up to 100 players on a single football team. Why? Because they know that everybody that suits up in game one is not going to make it to game 13 or game 12, right? They're not going to make it to the end of the season. Now, Lord willing, it's not going to be because they're dying like the priest, right? But, but injury is going to take people out, right? They're not going to make it to the end. They, even in one game, people are going to get fatigued. They're going to get tired. You've got to have the next people ready to go, right? That's the idea being painted here, right? Humanity is weak. The priesthood was weak. They were prevented from, from death, uh, by death, from being able to continue on. And so there had to be lots of them to carry on the work of the priesthood. Now, but before we kind of move on from this, there's, there's two things I want us to just settle in and meditate on about death being the thing that prevented them from being able to continue in office. Right, I think it's easy to, to breeze by that and say, well, yeah, I mean, humans die. Death would prevent it from carrying on. But, but let's, let's ask the deeper questions underneath that. Why did death keep the Levitical priest from being able to carry on? Because death is the consequence of sin. And what that says to us is that the priesthood was full of sinners. Every single one of them was a sinner, was a rebel against God. And so therefore, they needed someone to stand in their place as much as anybody else. They needed someone to reconcile themselves to God. Their relationship with God was broken. They were under the same curse as the rest of mankind because of their fallen nature and because of their own sinful rebellion. So yes, death prevented them from continuing on. And the reason it prevented them was because they were a bunch of sinners who also needed a Savior. But not only that, I also want us to realize that death was a constant threat to the priesthood because of the nature of their role. So we read in Exodus 28, for example, God, this is early on in the giving of the law, and he's establishing his priesthood. And God is talking to Aaron, who would be serving as essentially the high priest, and he's giving Aaron instructions about going into the holy place and what he needs to do when he goes into the holy place. And there in Exodus 28, verse 34, he, he instructs God's people that you need to put bells on the bottle, on the hem of, <clears throat> on the hem of the robe of the high priest. And then verse 35 goes on to say this, and these, talking about the bells and the pomegranates on the hem of his rope, and these shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, 
so that he does not die. In other words, failing to treat the temple and that which is holy as sacred didn't come with a two-week suspension from the priesthood. It came with death. And in fact, not long after these instructions were given to Aaron, in Aaron's lifetime, in Leviticus chapter 10, his sons were serving as priests. Again, they were descended from Aaron. They had every uh, uh, right to be in that role. And Leviticus uh, uh, 10 tells us that his sons offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, something they were not instructed to do, but they decided to do anyway. And Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. So, yes, the former priests were prevented by death from continuing in office. And that concept of being prevented by death captures many different aspects of what that means. They were prevented by natural death, which was a consequence of the curse of the fall and of their sin and rebellion against God. They were prevented by death because of the constant... thread of death as unholy sinful men who were tasked with handling holy things. Right? You even think about later in uh, under the reign of David when they're moving the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the, 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 the oxen who are carrying it stumble a little bit and it seems like it's going to come off the cart and Uzzah reaches out his hand to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him down because no one was to lay their hands on the Ark of the Covenant. They were supposed to use poles to carry it. And so, these sinful, unholy priests had to handle holy things. And so they were prevented by death from being able to carry on. Verse 24, however, tells us that Jesus is different. Jesus, verse 24 says, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, I love this word permanently. When you, when you get into the original language behind the word permanently, it's fascinating. This is the only time this word appears in all of the New Testament. It's almost like the, um, <clears throat> the author of Hebrews uh, seemingly kind of made this word up because the word is constructed from two different things. One meaning to go beyond and then he negates it. So it's the word for to go beyond but it's the negative version of it. So he's saying that which cannot be gone beyond. Right? It's saying there is no successor. You can't go beyond Christ. There will never be another high priest to come because Jesus is the permanent high priest. There's not someone who's next in line. There's not many more of them. There's not, they're not many in number. They're, they don't need to be, right? Jesus is not prevented from carrying on because he's under death. No, he is our priest forever, permanently. There will never be a successor to him. He will forever be our high priest because he continues 
forever. Because he possesses, as we read earlier in Hebrews, an indestructible life. Listen, that, has, that theological truth has vast implications for our lives. Because this passage goes on to say, because of that, because he alone is our priesthood, with no, is our high priest with no successor, because he continues forever, verse 25, therefore, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save us fully, completely, and forever. That is all captured in that word uttermost. There is no end to his ability to save. For generations to come until the Lord returns, he will continue to be able to save to the uttermost of time. He is able to save to the uttermost of necessity. He is able to save us fully because he is our priest forever. But notice with me who this applies to. Verse 25 does not say he is able to save to the uttermost every single person. No, what does it say? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is not... A universalist, the author of Hebrews, is not a universalist. Every single person on planet earth will not find themselves in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. He is not able to save to the uttermost every person. No, who is he able to save to the uttermost? Those who draw near to God through him. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, right? It's a really well-known passage. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. But if we go through him, there are glorious promises, right? He will save us to the uttermost if we draw near to God through Christ so this becomes a really important question for us this morning, right? How do we, therefore, draw near to God through Jesus Christ? If that's the category of people who are saved to the uttermost, what does it mean to draw near to God through Jesus Christ? Well, it means that we must lay down any attempt to draw near to God in our own strength. We don't come to God with our list of achievements, with our list of good works. We don't come to him. We don't draw near to him, believing that we deserve to be in his presence forevermore. No, what it means to draw near to God through Jesus Christ, it means that we draw near to him, admitting and confessing that we need a savior to stand in our place. It means we come to him and we acknowledge and we confess that, that we have rotten, rebellious, sinful lives and that we need the righteous, spotless, sinless, holy, unstained life of Jesus Christ to stand in our place on Judgment Day. It means that we come before him pleading the blood of the cross where Jesus took on the wrath of God the Father and we confess that we deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon us for our sins. 
but we lean on the finished work of Christ that stands in our place instead. It means to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ and lean on him and depend on him and fix your hope on him. That's what it means to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Listen, that's one of the reasons why if not, it's not every time, but I try, by God's grace, Lord willing, every time I pray to begin my prayers by acknowledging my need for a Savior. It's just a good habit to get into. Because we need to draw near to God through Him. And what better way can we do it than right up front admitting, I'm coming to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But hear me out this morning. Our confidence in Christ isn't just in his past work. It's also in his present, ongoing work on our behalf. Look with me at that last phrase of verse 25. Listen, I want you all to know this last phrase of verse 25 has been sitting on me for three or four days now. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, them being those who draw near to God through him. Now, let's be sure we understand the flow of the argument of verse 25. He says, look, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why is he able to save them? How is he able to save them? Because or since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. I mean, do you hear that? Your salvation is not only a past event. It is an ongoing daily accomplishment of Jesus Christ as he intercedes for you every single moment of every single day of your life. Even as you draw near to God through Christ, he is faithfully interceding on your behalf. You see, we don't just need a past tense priest. We need a present tense priest. It's why it's so important, it's why it's in this section, that it is connected to the fact that he, is, he has an indestructible life, that he continues forever, that he lives even today at the Father's right hand because we need him right now to be making intercession for us. And it should be staggering to us that Jesus Christ, he who is without beginning, for whom the world was made, through whom the world was made, for whom the world exists, this entire world by God's divine plan is bent toward bringing glory to Jesus Christ and glory to his name. It's all about Jesus and yet there he is right now, always living continually every day to make intercession for you and for me. It is staggering. And if Jesus were to cease interceding for us, we would cease to have a Savior. Which means we would cease to be saved and we would be without hope. Right? That's what this passage says. We are saved to the uttermost because 
he always lives to make intercession for us. So let's just think about this for a moment. Listen, one of, one of the most encouraging things in pastoral ministry is to know that people are praying for you. I know so many of you faithfully pray for me and pray for the other elders in this church, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Almost 15 years ago now, at a, at a previous church, there was a, an elderly woman named Carolyn McGugan. I'll never forget her name. She was a faithful saint in that church. She was rather frail in her later, later years and wasn't able to come and to fellowship with us in our church. But she never, she never stopped praying for me. And I would regularly receive a card in the mail from Carolyn McGugan where she would write a note of encouragement and let me know how she had been praying for me over the past week. I still have those cards. They're a precious gift of God to me. In fact, some of them are hard to read because her, her strength began to fail. She couldn't write as easily anymore. But she kept on praying. You know, I wish I was able to keep getting those cards from Carolyn, but she, she passed away, and I know she's now staring at the face of Jesus Christ in heaven. She's full of joy forevermore, but as much as I wish she was still here praying for me, her prayers are nothing compared to the moment-by-moment daily intercession that Jesus Christ makes for every single one of us. But do you get the weight of that, friends? As precious as it is to know that individuals are praying for you and lifting you up, they cannot exceed Jesus' tender care and prayer for you. He always, just read, just read it again, he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. That's what he's doing for us. And he will do it forever. He is our priest forever, never to be exceeded, never to be superseded. We're not waiting for a greater priest or we're not waiting for the next guy in line. It is Jesus and it is Jesus alone. There is nothing greater for which we wait. Therefore, by God's grace, let us fight all temptations to look for hope or peace in any other place. It will be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And I want us to all leave here this morning with this picture in our mind, right? Jesus is not sitting back passively waiting on you to get your act together. He is leaning in and pleading with his Father for you. He is active on your behalf, interceding for you each and every moment of every day. When you wake up in the morning to spend time with God in prayer, Jesus has already been pouring out his heart for you. He's already been at work for you. So yes, he saves us to the uttermost. 
He is the final high priest. There will never be another. But not only that, he is also our final sacrifice. Let's look at this second reason we ought to have confidence in Christ. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Look with me at verses 26 through 28. Verse 26 tells us that Jesus was the perfect high priest that perfectly fit the needs of man in our sinfulness and the kind providence and sovereignty of God. Jesus is exactly what we needed for our eternal salvation. It says in verse 26 that he was holy and innocent and unstained. That's three words just piling on the reality that Jesus was without sin when he walked on planet earth. Not once did he doubt or question the kindness and sovereign reign of his father. Not once did he disobey his father. Not once did he pursue something outside of his father's will. He perfectly obeyed him and therefore he was holy. He is holy. He is innocent and he is unstained by sin. Not only that, he is separated from sinners. Now, let's be careful with this phrase. Because Jesus never stood off from sinners. Right? You can read about his life in the Gospels. He, was, he got his hands figuratively, let's be theologically careful here. He got his hands dirty with sinners, right? He went and, and ate meals with them in their home, right? He, he celebrated things with them. He sat with tax collectors and, and he was chastised and rebuked by the Pharisees for going in these homes and hanging out with these people. And so he didn't physically separate himself from sinners and praise be to God because even today we can draw near to him. So it doesn't mean that he physically separated himself from sinners. What it means is that he is in a separate category from sinners. He is separate altogether from them. He did not participate in their sins. He separated himself from such actions and deeds. And not only that, he is, at the end of verse 26, he is exalted above the heavens. Which, praise be to God, we just saw why that is so needed by us, why it is a perfect fit for what we need, because we need a priest to daily intercede for us. And because he has been exalted above the heavens, because he rose from the dead, he sits at the Father's right hand praying for us daily. And so because he is a fitting high priest, verse 27 tells us that he has no need like those high priests, right, the ones that were many in number who were prevented by death from continuing in office. He has no need like them to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. So just as a reminder, the temple was a bloody place. Right? Daily. Every single day. Multiple times a day. They had to slaughter animal after animal after animal after animal and offer it up on the altar because the sins of God's people were never ending. Every day. The priests had a sacrifice for their own sins. They had a sacrifice for the sins of the people and it had to go on every day. And as we will see later in Hebrews, the, the blood of, of goats and bulls can never take away sin. And so 
while the symbolism continued, it could, it could never do anything about the sin. And so it just continued on and on and on and on. And these priests, day after day, generation after generation, had to continue to offer up these animals on the altar. It was an endless stream of animals being slaughtered and sacrificed because the sins of God's people were unending. It was a bloody, ongoing, daily reminder of the depravity of mankind. But the author of Hebrews tells us it all changed with Jesus. It all changed when Jesus came up first because he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself, right? What did we just read in verse 26? Jesus was holy and unstained. He was holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners. There was no sin uh, within himself for which he needed to offer a sacrifice. There was no sacrifice that had to be made for Jesus. And so he stands as the pure, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And so he did not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, but he also no longer had to offer daily sacrifices for the sin of the people. Why? Because verse 27 tells us in that last phrase of verse 27 that he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now I want to focus on two sets of words in that last statement. What does it mean that he offered up himself and what does it mean that it was once for all? Now hear me. He offered up himself. It's really important that we understand that Jesus willingly offered himself as a sacrifice. It's, look, it's easy to read the historical account that takes place in the Gospels and to think about the, the treachery of the Jewish leadership and the treachery of Pilate and Herod is what led to Jesus' death. But the Bible tells us they were simply carrying out the divine plan of God. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. In fact, Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So yes, yes, even though Judas betrayed Jesus, and, and a crowd mobbed him in the middle of the night. And Herod and Pilate had him beaten. And the soldiers shoved a mocking crown of thorns on his head and dressed him in purple and spit in his face and punched him over and over and over again, mocking him and asking, who is it that's punching you, Jesus? And even though they lashed his back to where it looked like hamburger meat, and even though they were the ones who, who drove the nails through his hands and his feet and mounted him to the cross, he never relinquished his right to lay down his own life. He was sovereign over it every single step of the way. Remember what we learned earlier in Hebrews chapter 1? 
Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. Which means, while he was being punched and spit on and nails driven into his wrist and feet, he was holding the molecules of those men together. He was holding the cross together and the metal of the nails together so that he could lay down his life and willingly offer himself up as a sacrifice for you and for me. So yes, yes, he, he offered up himself. But it also says that he did so once for all. This phrase is meant to stand in sharp contrast to the constant stream of sacrifice that was demanded by the Old Testament law for the sins of the people, right? They had to have lots of priests because of all the sins of the people, and they daily had to offer sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice for the sins of the people over and over and over again. But when Jesus came, when he offered up himself, he pronounced, it is finished. It's over. It's done. There never needs to be another sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Once for all time, it is over and it is done. That's what that phrase means when it says that he did this once for all. Once for all time, never to be repeated or done again. He offered up himself and therefore he is the final sacrifice that stands in our place. You see, Jesus is the final priest. There will never be another. He is the final sacrifice. We're not waiting on a better, a more sufficient, a more capable sacrifice. When Jesus declared it is finished on the cross, he meant it. Therefore, Jesus paid the debt fully and completely for our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom for everyone who would ever believe in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more we can do to atone for our sins than Jesus has already done. And listen, this has vast implications for our relationship with God. So I just, I want you to hear me this morning. Because there will never be another high priest, because there will never be another sacrifice, because Jesus daily intercedes for us, because Jesus is our final, fitting, and sufficient, all for, uh, once for all sacrifice. Because all that is true, it is not possible for you to be more forgiven than you are right now in Jesus Christ. It is not possible for you to be more loved than you are right now by Jesus Christ. It is not possible 
for you to be more atoned for than you have already been atoned for through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You cannot be more accepted by Jesus Christ than you are right now because of his role as our high priest. And Jesus cannot be more committed to save you to the uttermost as an adopted child of God kept firm in his unshakable grip for all eternity than he is right now. You see, I think far too often we get caught up in our walk with Christ and thinking we got to earn his love today. We need to earn his forgiveness today. Maybe he'll love me more tomorrow or next week than he loves me right now. And what I say to you, it's not possible. He can't love you more because he fully loves you. He gave his life for you. But we must remember that this glorious truth and reality is for those who draw near to God through him. So let's tread lightly, right? We must not presume upon the glorious grace of God. You cannot presume upon his grace if you are not drawing near to God through Jesus Christ. Right, I want to make that clear this morning. I don't want to give false hope or false assurance. You cannot consistently live your life pursuing your own fleshly passions and desires and sins and then out of the same mouth claim that you are actually seeking to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. You are self-deceived if that's true of you. Don't let yourself be deceived. Those who trust in Christ are transformed in such a way that their lives are marked by a pursuit of Christ. They are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Those who are trusting in Christ, while you cannot be more forgiven, you can be more obedient. While you cannot be more accepted, you can be more disciplined in your walk with Christ. While you cannot be more loved, you can live your life more to the glory of his name. But what we must do is lay down all illusions that our works can add to the completed once-for-all work of Christ. They can't. It is done. It is finished. Once for all. He is our all-sufficient high priest, there will never be another. He is our perfect final sacrifice. There will never be another. He stands in our place perfectly, the perfect fit to meet our need as our all-sufficient Savior. And so I conclude for us with verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Praise be to God for the work of Christ. Let's pray together now.
Father, we are thankful for the work of Jesus that stands in our place. Father, I pray that we would glorify him in our lives as we acknowledge that uh, we don't need another priest. We don't need another hope. We don't need anyone else. And so, Father, I pray that, that our lives would reflect our full confidence in the final priesthood of Jesus Christ and in the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that we would not depend on our works. But instead, Father, I pray that we would look to the cross, that we would look to all that Jesus has accomplished in our, pray, in our place, and that we would be motivated to live our lives for the glory of his name. That, that we would love Christ and be drawn to the glories of who he is and what he has done in such a way that we cannot imagine consistently, daily, habitually pursuing sin and selfishness and greed and pride. Instead of running from him, Father, I pray by the power, power of your spirit that, that we would draw near to you through him. Father, I pray even now as we prepare to sing together that you would be at work in us, fixing our eyes on Jesus as we instruct one another as we sing aloud together. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.